You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. You might ask yourself, what does a show like the Bruce Exclusive do when there are no narratives of the games to get into? Because that's kind of what we do. It's kind of my shtick. So the question is, what do you do? Well, Obviously, you've never listened to me in the offseason. I find a way to create content. My brain creates all sorts of weird things. We do musical episodes. We do episodes on logical fallacies. And today, we are going to do an episode about pancakes. Not really pancakes, obviously. But we're going to do an exercise that I have affectionately coined the better batter. And the reason we're going to have this conversation is because with the bills being off... The Ravens losing to the Bengals and the Titans whooping up on the Chiefs. All of a sudden, the balance of power in the AFC is starting to change a little bit. And people are starting to say, okay, well, in the NFC, there's five or six teams right there at the top and then everybody pretty much underneath them. But in the AFC, we've got all sorts of teams And you can make an argument for a lot of them as being the best team in the AFC. And so when you look at things like this, all of a sudden the Bills place within the power rankings of the AFC starts to come into question. Who's better? Who's better? And that was a topic that came up on social media a lot this week. So I'm still talking about narratives, but instead of talking about narratives from the game, I'm talking about narratives from the buy. And you know how I feel about food references. This pretty much goes without saying at this point that I like the food references. I do a show called Food for Thought with Nate Geary on Friday nights on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network that drops as a podcast on Saturday mornings. Almost called it Foodball. Maybe I should have in retrospect. I'm not sure. We did QB stew as my proprietary quarterback composite of metrics. And now we have the better batter. So what all goes into a team being better than another one? Let's start with what we know it's not. It's not 
head-to-head only in one game. It's not that. We know that. We know that because the phrase, any given Sunday, is such because the lesser team wins all the time. The Jets beat the Titans. It's come up on conversation multiple times when discussing the Titans this week. They lost the Jets. It's clearly not just head-to-head because the lesser team wins all the time. The better team loses all the time. It's one of the reasons we love football. It's where any given Sunday comes from. So it's not as simple as, well, this team played this team and they won, therefore they're better. It's not, it's not that simple. It's not how it works. There is no transitive property in football. Well, the Jets beat the Titans and the Titans beat the Bills and the Bills are going to go beat Tampa Bay. Therefore, the Jets are better than the Super Bowl champions. That's not how this works. And we know this. But if we know that a singular head-to-head discussion cannot be the only part that makes up our better batter, what goes into better? Well, I want to talk about a couple things that I think go into better. A couple things that I think make up the better batter. Number one, head-to-head over a large enough sample size because styles make fights. I mentioned previously that the Bills beating the Chiefs prevented the Chiefs from becoming the boogeyman. When the New England Patriots beat the Bills over and over and over and over again during the Tom Brady New England Patriots years, they were the boogeyman. They were a better team. Head-to-head matters over a long enough sample size. Head-to-head one time, doesn't matter. Head-to-head over three years, Probably matters a little bit. Why? Why does that matter? Bruce, a lot of things change from year over year. Yes, that's true. Sometimes coaches don't. Sometimes offensive scheme doesn't. Sometimes defensive scheme doesn't. Sometimes quarterbacks don't. There's enough that carries over from year to year to year to year that if it's head to head consistently, I think that's part of it. It's not all of it. But it's a component of it. So head-to-head over a large enough sample size because styles make fights. Certain teams are just bad matchups for other teams. One of the things that was discussed a lot after the Tennessee Titans beat the Buffalo Bills is whether or not they're just a bad matchup for the Buffalo Bills because of the way they play offense. Maybe. Maybe they're a bad matchup. But I think that head-to-head over a long enough period of time matters. The second thing is the signature wins of the teams involved. Who did you beat? Now, this matters a lot more in college football because it's a lot more of a popularity contest. But again, we're not trying to determine who has the better record. We're trying to determine who's the better team. And those two things are not always the same. Signature wins matter. Are you able to beat upper-level competition? The Buffalo Bills have played Two teams I would consider to be pretty good this year. They won one against the Kansas City Chiefs. I understand the Chiefs are three and four. I still think they're a pretty good team. And the Tennessee Titans, they lost when Josh Allen slipped on a fourth and one conversion right there close to the goal line. So signature wins matter. I think the Titans beating the Chiefs matters. I think the Bengals beating the Ravens 
matters. Signature losses also matter. I think the Titans losing to the Jets matters. Losing to teams far beneath your station matters. The Bills losing to the Steelers matters. I don't think the Steelers are nearly as good as the Buffalo Bills are, but they beat them. And it was really disappointing, but we didn't overreact because we knew the teams were still the way that the teams are. We knew the Bills were still good. We know the Steelers were still, eh. We knew that. One game head-to-head didn't change that. So head-to-head over a large enough sample size, signature wins, signature losses, and then I think total record has to be a part of this. Not all of this, not even a huge chunk of this, just part of it. Total record has to matter. A 13-3 team has seen more Ws than a 9-7 team. They've been through more situations where they have emerged victorious. We all know strength of schedule matters, but we're going to get into that later. Total record has to matter. And the last thing is DVOA. Why DVOA? Why not points per game? Because I want it to be opponent weighted. I want it to be weighted against the teams that you've played. Because strength of schedule is a real thing in the NFL. And DVOA does a pretty good job of making sure you can kind of filter a slot of that stuff out. At the end of the year, it'll be as accurate as it's ever going to be. Because it will have collected the entire year's worth of data. So I think DVOA matters. So these are five things that you can point to as far as what makes a team better. Head-to-head over a large enough sample size. Signature wins, signature losses, total record, DVOA. These are pieces of evidence that you could use that one team is better than another one. Now, the way they get there, obviously, is by having better coaches, better quarterbacks, better defensive coordinator, better pass rushers, all things like that. But those aren't evidence that your team is better. Those are leading indicators. This stuff I just mentioned, they're lagging indicators. And that's what I want to use for the purpose of this conversation. I'm going to use lagging indicators. Stuff you can use to prove that your team is better backwards. Not the things that make your team better. The evidence that your team is better. Well, we're better because we have Josh Allen. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Those are the things that will help drive the results. But that's a leading indicator. That's something that will help you become better. That's not evidence that you are better. It's not the same thing evidence that you are better, I would think would fall under the five things I mentioned. And that's what makes up the better batter. So we're cooking up some pancakes, some flapjacks as it were. I'm not really much of a huge pancake guy. They're fine. I like pancakes. They're reasonable, but I'm more of a waffle guy. I want the texture differential. I prefer waffles to pancakes. I'm fine with pancakes. My wife will say, hey, we're doing breakfast for dinner. You want pancakes or waffles? I'll pretty much always take waffles. If that's an option. I do think we have to get a new waffle maker though. Anyway, that's the better batter. Those are the things that I think you can point to in totality. Not one by itself. In totality, all together. You can look at all five of those things and go, hey, I think this team is better than this other team when you're comparing two teams. I think that's important. And I think as we are moving through the AFC and it's going to become complicated, The Titans, the Ravens, the Bengals, the Bills, the Chargers. All these teams in the AFC where you could argue is one better than the other. 
Are the Ravens better than the Chargers? Are the Chargers better than the Bengals? The Bengals better than the Bills? The Bills better than the Titans? Things like that. I really feel like we got to look at these things in totality because it's never as simple as we played head-to-head. It's never as simple as we got a better record. It's not that simple. But I think if we use these five things in totality, it'll get us on the right track. It'll help us make a pancake. It's the better batter. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got plurality by. Yeah, that's right. Plurality by to go through. Stick with me. I'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We had some better batter. And this is the time of the podcast where historically we would do plurality pie, but we don't have a game. So instead, I'm going to do plurality by. And I just thought I was so clever. I got to be honest, between better batter and plurality by my pun game was absolutely on point. If you want really, really bad puns, I am your guy. I am your dude. I am the man, the myth, the legend, the ponderful. Bruce Nolan. And I was very proud of myself this week with my puns. What separates plurality by from the previous iterations of plurality pie is we are going to do the entire season. The Buffalo Bills are four and two. Who do I think is most responsible for the Buffalo Bills being four and two? That's the plurality by that we're going to go into. Who is most responsible? Who's least responsible? for the Buffalo Bills being four and two. In the same way that the most responsible and least responsible for the Bills' victory or loss occurs after the game. Josh Allen, 28%. Wins are not a quarterback stat. But I opined during the offseason, during a podcast with Jay Spence the King, that quarterbacks could be 30% of the reason, on average, why you win or lose a game. Not even close to being enough that I'm willing to assign a stat to him. I'm not going to assign 100% of the stat to someone who has 30% of the impact on a win or a loss. But Josh Allen, 28%. Receivers and tight ends, 11%. Dawson Knox being a reliable weapon matters. Emmanuel Sanders being an upgrade from John Brown matters. Gabriel Davis is an afterthought in this offense because Emmanuel Sanders is good. And he absolutely had something in the tank. Brandon Bean gets a lot of credit for drafting Josh Allen, and he should. He gets a lot of credit for drafting Tremaine Evans, and he should. Brandon Bean in free agency has probably been better than Brandon Bean in the draft, even though he picked Josh Allen. Cole Beasley, John Brown, Emmanuel Sanders, Daryl Williams, Mitch Morse. Mario Addison, Starla Tulele. This stuff matters. I think he's probably been better in free agency than he has been in the draft, and wide receivers are a huge part of that. Moving along, Josh Allen was 28%. Receivers and tight ends were 11%. Offensive coaching, 10%. I'm not one of those people who immediately goes to play calling anytime something bad happens on offense. I never will be. I have a feeling that play calling is this weird abstract in people's minds. And it's so easy to just blame play calling. 
anytime Josh Allen doesn't do well, it's, wow, the play calling was bad. Unless you can specifically say, here's why the play calling was bad, that doesn't end in, well, it didn't work, then maybe we shouldn't criticize play calling. But there are times when I have, especially after week one, I came on this podcast and I didn't love the play calling. And I was able to specifically say why I didn't love it. And it didn't involve me saying, well, it didn't work. Offensive coaching has been good this year. They've responded. They've made the adjustments. They came out week one against the Steelers in a lot of 10 personnel. Didn't quite go the way they wanted to. They went back to a lot of 11 personnel. I think it's worked out really well. I think that there are some adjustments that still need to be made, specifically in the red zone. When it comes to the Bills' offensive efficiency, I think teams are defending the Bills differently. And much like rock, paper, scissors, if you're constantly throwing out rock and eventually they get smart and start throwing paper, now you got to switch to scissors. And when you have a quarterback who has the traits that Josh Allen does, that gives you options, which means more things are on the table and you can pivot toward things that will be successful against the way teams are playing you, specifically in this case, in the red zone. Head coaching, 8%. Sean McDermott continues to be more right more often especially relative to the way he was earlier in his tenure. Sean McDermott is growing. He's evolving. He's learning. I'm really glad that I don't have to worry about my coach sitting on his hands and never developing, never getting better. That the person he is right now isn't going to be the same person he is in five years. I don't have to worry about the game passing him by. And that gives you hope for the future. Because so much around fandom is got to take advantage of our window now. You never know what's going to happen. But as we've already established, there's a lot of luck associated with football. There's a lot of luck associated with football. The best team does not always win. Be as good as possible for as long as possible. That's how you win. Because sometimes the ball just has to bounce your way. And with Sean McDermott, that second part of the piece be as good as possible for as long as possible. I don't have to worry about the game passing him by. I have taken more than a few opportunities to bash on Pete Carroll on this podcast because I do think the game has passed him by. I don't have to worry about that with Sean McDermott. I do not think that Pete Carroll lasts very long at all as the Seattle Seahawks head coach if Russell Wilson doesn't come along. So, Josh Allen, 28%. Receivers and tight ends, 11%. Offensive coaching, 10%. Head coaching, 8%. Defensive coaching, 8%. Ho-hum. Leslie Frazier, just doing a good job again. The most boring, effective defensive coordinator. Nobody talks about him the way they should. The Texans should have hired him as their head coach. They could use a real significant leader of men who can stabilize that franchise. Linebackers, 8%. Tremaine Evans taking a step forward. Matt Milano being healthy. For the most part, this matters. I went back and watched some Tremaine Evans from 2020 the other day. I think it's pretty clear how the shoulder injury affected him early on. And I'm glad we're starting to see a recapture of the trajectory he was on in 2019. But linebackers have been a big part to this defensive resurgence in 2021 and do not let Derrick Henry's big stat line against the Buffalo Bills distract you from the fact that Tremaine Edmonds played really well against the Titans too. Don't let Derrick Henry go, well, 
he ran for a lot of yards, so our linebackers must not have played well. Tremaine Evans played really well. Safeties, 8%. Micah Hyde continues to be, in my opinion, the most underappreciated safety in football. Maybe one of the most underappreciated players in football. He's the straw that stirs the drink for the Buffalo Bills pass defense. And the reason why the average distance of target against the Bills is always so low. They don't even try. They don't even try against my guide. Cornerbacks, 6%. Levi Wallace not getting picked on as much, but to be fair, hasn't had the opportunity yet. I'll be interested to see if Devontae Parker plays with the Miami Dolphins. I'll be very interested to see if they pick on Levi Wallace again. So, been completely reasonable, as you would expect him to be, but hasn't been challenged a lot by exemplary fast or exemplary strong big receivers. Defensive line, 5%. There was some discussion after the Miami game. Oh, man, this defensive line. Second coming of the cold front? No, not, not yet. They got work to do. I'd like to see a lot more A.J. Epinesa after the bye, and hopefully Gregory Rousseau can continue to develop but they're not there yet. Offensive line, 4%. One of the weaker parts of this team, offensive line right now, specifically the guard play. John Feliciano is looking like a player that you will actively seek to replace in the offseason based on the way he's played. It's been middling. Darrell Williams is kind of getting his feet underneath him at right guard. So there's still a possibility we could end this season and not think right guard is a problem. Mitch Morse continues to be good. Deion Dawkins continues to be good. And Spencer Brown is a rookie who flashes. So three of the five spots are eh. One of them has a reason to be eh, and that's Spencer Brown. One of them has a pretty good reason to be eh, and that's Daryl Williams trying to reacclimate to right guard. And there's John Feliciano at left guard. Specialist, 2%. Tyler Bass has been playing well. Matt Hawk. Not punting the ball all that well. I wasn't a huge fan of the Hawks signing when they did it. And that's been pretty accurate. He hasn't been very good punting the ball. But he's been really good holding the ball. And I think that they're perfectly happy with Matt Hawk. I would be shocked at this point if the Buffalo Bills invested in a punter this offseason. I think Hawk is the guy. I don't think he's a great punter. But I think they're okay with that. Other 2%. There's always another there's always physical trainers. There's always strength and conditioning coaches. Other 2%. I don't want to forget about all the other people who help make this team great. Strength and conditioning, team doctors, things like that. You might be wondering, where's Brandon Bean? This is specifically on-fielded performance. That's why Brandon Bean's not on here. Specifically on-field performance. I understand he picks the players that go on the field, but on-field performance only, because otherwise... I'd have to go up to the Bagulas, and it gets real messy, and it's a whole thing. Just on field. So, we did plurality buy. Earlier, we talked about better batter. And now, we've got two emails I want to get into. William emails me and says, If you're looking for questions for the bye week, here's a suggestion from me. Is the Bills' great culture a cause of their success or the result of their success and talent? Personally, I think people undervalue their culture as a factor in their success. I would love to hear your thoughts on the interaction between this and other factors like successful drafts, such as Allen and the trade for Diggs. All the best, Bill. So, 
the chicken and the egg thing with culture is interesting because winning creates a good culture and good culture helps to facilitate winning. We have all been part at some point in our lives. If you've worked long enough, if you are old enough, you have been part of a work environment that has a good culture. If you've worked long enough, you've been part of a work culture that is bad. You've seen both. You know how it affects your productivity. You know how it affects the energy level that you get from your job. It matters. I think culture is a real thing. And you might find that unusual if you're new to this podcast. Because you think, well, Bruce is the metrics guy. Bruce is the analytics guy. Bruce isn't going to believe in culture. Of course I believe in culture. Just because it can't be measured doesn't mean it's not real. I understand it's real. I can't measure it. The reason I don't talk about it much is because I can't measure it. But that doesn't mean it's not real. It's real. But at the same time, it's also a result. It is simultaneously a cause of and a result of success. When you are successful, there is a level of behavioral momentum that exists. If you are in a computer programming cubicle farm and the guy next to you is really nailing his code and he's excited about it. He's got a good energy about it and he's happy about it. It's going to help you. It's going to help you feel better about your work. There's going to be good energy. You're going to get pumped up. You're going to have more confidence. If you're part of a sales floor and people are selling, there's a good energy in the office. These types of things will openly be admitted to from people who work in these environments. Everyone knows these things are real. They just can't be measured. I do think that culture matters. But I don't want to say for a split second that culture matters enough to create winning by itself because it can't. It can't. All of the great culture in the world isn't going to help you if your X's and O's are garbage and your players are bad. It's not going to help. I'll tell you when culture really matters, when stuff goes bad. Right now, the New York Jets had to get a vote of confidence from their owner. And they're seven games into the first year of Robert Sala. That never had to happen with the Buffalo Bills. Terry and Kim Pagula did not have to come out and give Sean McDermott a vote of confidence because they were winning. But when they didn't win, when things went really bad and they got blown out two weeks in a row and they went to Nathan Peterman and bad stuff happened and it was looking like the season was coming off the rails, that's when culture matters. Culture matters when other situations might derail the season or the day or the week or the month or the year or whatever it is. That's when culture matters. Because you've earned that. When Sean McDermott stood in front of the team and said, guys, I screwed up, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Shouldn't have started Peterman. Was trying to get a spark. And he put Tyrod back in. There were no groans. There were no whispers behind his back about what a schmuck Sean McDermott was. And then they went. And they won a playoff game. Now, there could have been whispers and we just didn't know about it. But there certainly wasn't players tweeting that this is absolute bull crap 
like Brandon Cooks did yesterday evening when the Texans traded a beloved leader in Mark Ingram back to the Saints. That didn't happen. So that matters. Culture matters when other things could have gone off the rails. And I think that's the time it matters most. And I think at a very early time in a rebuild, there has to be either instant success or enough leash to allow for long-term success. If you don't have instant success, the culture better be there to hold it together until the success comes. There is no amount of culture that'll hold it together forever. If you have a losing franchise, no matter how good your culture is, it's not going to matter. But culture can glue it together until it really sets, until the winning starts coming. You just got to hold down the fort. And that's what culture is to me. Culture is holding down the fort until the winds come. Because then once the winds come, the culture starts kind of manufacturing itself. And then you get kind of a positive energy from the successes. So that's how I feel about culture. I do not think it's as important as X's and O's. I do not think it's as important as the players or the coaches. I don't think it's as important as strategy. But I think it matters. And it matters specifically at the very beginning of a rebuild. And that's the way I look at culture. Jeremy says, Hey Bruce, like many others, I really enjoy the Bill Simmons podcast when he and Cousin Sal guess the lines. The takes are mediocre, but it's usually funny. I know Simmons is a Pats fan, but the slobber level over Mac Jones has gotten into St. Bernard type territory. And I feel like the national media is similar. When it comes to the Patriots, I'm far from logical. But Mac seems not great to me. I looked up some advanced stats, and I see that of the quarterbacks with over 100 pass attempts, Mac ranks 22nd of 33 in intended air yards per attempt, 25th in completed air yards per attempt, and tied for 28th at completed air yards per completion. And though he's 11th in yak, the yak per completion is 21st. I need you to help me decipher whether I'm being a homer and my intrinsic bias against all things Patriots is blinding me to his actual capabilities or not. I know QB Stew had him as 24th when you ran the numbers in early October, which would jive with the ranks I just mentioned, but I'm not sure if anything has changed. I need to be saved from the Patriots slobber fest. Help me, Bruce Nolan. You're my only hope. First off, I appreciate the Star Wars reference. Well, I'm not going to run, Stu. Jeremy, I, I, I don't have an answer for you right now, man. I don't have an answer for you. Stick with me, though, because I'm going to have an answer for you, too. Real soon. Real, real, real soon on Mac Jones. I agree with your eye test. Mac Jones has been efficient. He's been reasonable. Mac Jones at this point in his career has been Trent Edwards to me with better offensive coaching and better offensive weapons and a better offensive line. He's been Trent Edwards. He's accurately placed the ball. He's done what was asked of him. He did enough to manage and facilitate the offense. Josh McDaniels remains a good play caller. I think he's right now Trent Edwards with a better supporting cast. And I think that's completely fine right now. But soon, after next week probably, we will do QB Stew again. We'll do a half cup of QB Stew because the first time it was a quarter cup. This time it's a half cup because it's two quarters. 
So stick with me. Just hang on. I will totally, totally answer this question for you. I just can't do it right now. Jesse says, good morning, Bruce. A couple weeks ago, you argued for Moss becoming Bill's RB1A, citing his blockability and 2021 advanced rushing statistics, specifically rushing success rate and yards after contract. You argue that Moss has always been a better blocker than Singletary and that the aforementioned advanced statistics indicate he's also a better runner despite averaging fewer yards per carry over the past two seasons. I will grant you his blocking superiority, but regarding the advanced statistics, I wonder if you've considered the possibility that they contain biases in favor of Moss's traits and usage. Before delving into direct comparison between the two backs, consider a fundamental weakness in the advanced statistics selected. Although rushing is a composite skill that generally involves breaking or avoiding tackles, we disproportionately emphasize the breaking of tackles by choosing yards after contact statistic while ignoring the avoiding of tackles or yards before contact, which we presumably attribute to the offensive line rather than the elusiveness of the running back. Now, let's apply this disparity to Devin Singletary's 46-yard touchdown against the Dolphins in Week 2, which involved vision, timing, agility, and balance to hit the right gap and then weave through blocks in the secondary on his way to the end zone. By our advanced metrics, Singletary would have fared better, better to simply bowl over the strong safety before losing his balance 25 yards down the field. Not only do our advanced statistics inflate Moss's desirable traits while minimizing Singletary's, they provide less context than originally advertised. Based on the difference of traits described above, Buffalo uses Singletary Moss in different ways and in different situations. Moss is more likely to be selected in situations where rushing success is defined as a foot for fourth down conversion rather than six yards Singletary might need to get the 40% of the yards required on first and 15. In general, Moss probably faces situations with higher likelihoods of success because of the way Buffalo uses him based on his traits. I do think the advanced stats provide some value, but they mostly just confirm what we already see with our eyes. Zach Moss is a bigger back who's more likely to gain a few inches if he slams right into you. For me, the traditional running stats reflect the bigger picture. Devin Singletary is generally a more dynamic runner with higher upside. All this being said, there's an argument to be made for Moss based on his value as a blocker in the passing game, but I think we need to at least acknowledge Singletary's superiority as a runner up to this point based upon his overall body of work since 2019. All right, Jesse. First off, I appreciate the length of that email. I appreciate the viewers and listeners, not viewers, you can't see me, for sticking with me through that. You made two points. Number one, Devin Singletary's 46-yard touchdown against the Dolphins. Go back and watch that. That's not an overly impressive run by Devin Singletary. It's not. It's a perfectly reasonable run. Yeah, it's fine. It was a great hole and great downfield blocking. Devin Singletary really didn't do much on that. So I don't really think that that's a point in Devin Singletary's favor basically at all. The second thing you mentioned was the rushing success rate and how Zach Moss gets put in more desirable situations. But Zach Moss doesn't get put in more desirable situations. The most desirable situation to be put in is one with less men in the box. And as mentioned in that podcast, Devin Singletary runs against lighter boxes much more frequently than Zach Moss. Zach Moss gets put in tough situations, harder situations to equate to success. It is more difficult for Zach Moss to be successful. Because yes, he might be in on short yardage, but he's also in against packed boxes. The correlation between yards to go and success rate is not nearly as significant as the correlation between men in the box and success rate. 
that correlation is much, much, much stronger. So he's being put in worse situations, not better. It might be initially assumed that if you only have to gain two yards instead of six, it's going to be easier. But the correlation between yards to go and success rate isn't nearly as significant as the correlation between men in the box and success rate. The best thing you can do for your running backs to help grease the wheel and help them be good is light in the box. And Devin Singletary consistently runs against lighter boxes. I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about this, Jesse. I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about this. Especially since Zach Moss did not look great against the Titans. So I'm really glad I had the opportunity to talk about this. But I'm not willing to back down on that yet. Maybe later on I will be, but not yet. If you really want, if you really want a Devin Singletary advanced statistic that you can use for pro Singletary in this argument, it's rushing yards per carry over expected. That's what you want. Rushing yards over expected based on the position of the defenders at the time when Devin Singletary gets the ball. That has happened a billion times before. We know. We know based on all the other times where the positioning of the defenders at the time when Devin Singletary got the ball were the way they are for this carry and the position of your blockers were the way they are for this carry. We know that. It's happened a million times. We know how many yards you could be expected to get. Devin Singletary is getting more. He's doing better in that statistic than Zach Moss. If you want one, that's the one advanced stat that will be pro Singletary. We'll see how it looks at the end of the year. We'll see how it looks. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. 37 minutes. We did it. Thanks for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed the better batter. I hope you enjoyed the plurality buy. I hope you enjoyed the mailbag. Come back next week. We'll do it again. It'll be a good time. And if you don't, then I guess you're just going to be missing out. And if you really, really, really didn't like the show, you never come back again. Well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. <laughs>